Yeah, good morning. Welcome. This morning, we're going to be going through, um, continuing on in our series in 2 Peter. And we're going to explore Peter's last, these are his last recorded words to the church. And he's encouraging the church that while the leadership of the church is going to change, and the apostles, the, the original witnesses that they've, they've been really leaning on until that time, they're going to die. Peter's one of the last that's left. Um, and, you know, he knows his time is coming to an end. But the church is going to go on. And that is with an absolute, you know, certainty that he says that. So he's, he's exhorting the church on how they're to behave and prepare for the coming ages. And we just finished three weeks on chapter one, where Peter's focus was really to issue a challenge. And he challenged the church to be diligent about taking on that divine nature of Christ and practicing goodness, knowledge, self-control, godliness, endurance, family affection, and then, of course, the greatest of them all, love. But towards the end of chapter one, we saw that he started to address some challenges that were coming out against the church. And the first was that the apostles actually just made it all up. That Jesus was a fictional person, that all the stories of Jesus were just made up by the apostles. Or alternatively, Jesus was actually a person, but he was in no way divine. And Peter kind of quickly addresses this by recording a quick summary of his per personal witness of the transfiguration of Christ. And then he points them to the word. He points them to the Bible, or as they would have known at that time, literally just the Old Testament um, and only pieces of it. And he does that to quell any disbelief that Jesus was exactly who they said he was. Because, and we know this, it was declared in every detail by the Old Testament prophets long before Jesus actually came. But this then raises another challenge. Well, what if those prophets were false? And Peter quickly addresses those fears by pointing out that true prophecy, that which actually came true, can only come through men by the Holy Spirit. So why was that recap important? Well, because as chapter 1 ends and we start to step into chapter 2, Peter then transitions to a warning to the church that just as there were false prophets that led Israel astray, so there will be false teachers that will waylay the church. And that's where we begin chapter two. But for now, we're just going to open in some prayer. So Lord, we just thank you this morning. We just dedicate this time to you. Lord, we're just so thankful we live in a country where we can gather openly before you. We live in a country where we can have roofs over our head to gather before you, Lord, and just that in every way we are so blessed in that there is nothing that holds us back from you except ourselves. And so, Lord, we just seek to humble ourselves before you this morning and, and let your words dwell in our heart. Amen. So in 2 Peter 2, we start out with, but false prophets also appeared among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction among themselves. Many will follow their indecent behavior, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. 
And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So Peter wants to speak and teach on these false teachers and how we are to identify them. And the best tool that we have is the one that he gave us last week in chapter 1, that all things would be weighed against the scripture. There is no greater authority to which we can hold our teachers, our leaders, and our members than the word. Even in prayer, there is never going to be a situation where God speaks something that contradicts his word. Every word spoken by a preacher on this pulpit needs to be held to the word of God. And where it differs, it needs to be rejected. Peter's pointing out that while we love personal testimonies, we love a personal witness, a pastor's spin on an old story, there is nothing that compares to the real thing. So don't listen to John, Andrew, Eugene, or my version of the Bible alone. You, you can listen to us, but just not alone. But make sure you're following along in your Bible. You know, we mentioned to open your Bibles most weeks, and we don't do that to distract you or to make you look down so that you're not looking at us although that is a great added benefit for those of us that don't like standing up here. So, um, but we tell you to read your Bible because it is the most important thing that you can do during the service. It is critical to your faith and to this community. And I personally don't care if you get so involved in reading your Bible that you stop listening to me. <laughs> you know, if you get so distracted reading it and the Lord's working in you, go for it. That is a very, very good thing. And that's, that's what we want. And this sermon series is about doing what matters most. And I would argue that reading your Bible is one of the most important things that you can do. And why this matters is because it's your rock, your foundation, your fail-safe Prayer, worship, salvation, theology, doxology, enchantology, anthropology, all of these are anchored in this book. And this book is what ensures that all of us speakers stay the course. For me, I find it quite stressful to write a sermon, and it's not usually because of the topic or study. I, I love digging in and finding out new ways to understand a verse or a new revelation of how it all fits into God's plan. The, the research part is fun for me. It's the authority that's scary, knowing that I have to stand in front of all of you and ensure that my words represent the will of God in its entirety. So, you know, while it's fine that sometimes we focus on an aspect of God so that we better understand it, this church cannot teach on only a piece of our faith, for to do so would not be to tell the whole truth. And every word that we say has to represent the whole of Jesus without contradiction, or we end up preaching a false Jesus. And so I have this love-hate relationship with the stress of a sermon. I hate stress in general, but I love that he holds me accountable, and I know that my words here will be held accountable. And I know personally that John, Eugene, Andrew all feel that same pressure. And while it sounds really counterintuitive, I pray it never leaves any of us. Because the moment that pressure leaves, it means we're not worried about speaking God's words, but only our own. 
So God, uh, John, God, well, God did remind me some things this week, but John, in this case, reminded me of a scene in Nehemiah 4, verse 17, where the Israelites are rebuilding the wall and they're laboring to build the wall with one hand and they have their other hand carrying a sword. And this is a, a vision of the vigilance that the church needs to have. And so, as he reminded me of this, the first kind of question that came to me is, well, what is our sword? And of course, we know there's, there's many answers, but there's two biblical answers that came to me right away. And the first one's in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And then in two, in Ephesians 6.17, when we're talking about the armor of God, that, that kind of expands on this Hebrews verse and says, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So you have two weapons with you at all times, the word and the spirit. And I don't know if anyone else has ever noticed this, but the word sword is actually like literally an S and word. So it's like spirit and word. Okay, it's just me. It's all good. Okay. That's how I do it. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that comfort, John. I'm going to hear about that one at staff meeting, I'm sure. All right. But neither of these tools is going to do you much good if you don't know how to use them. And so how many of us want to give a sharp sword to a kid and then ask them to defend the house? Seems a little dangerous. But I'm going to phrase this a different way. So how many of you have a single, any type of musical instrument in your house? Could be anything. Drums, guitar, maybe it's a flute from high school hidden in the back closet. It just has to be in your house. So most of us have an instrument in our house, and yet how many of us want to stand up here and play that instrument on the worship team? Anyone want to volunteer? No? They're, they're looking for new members. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, they're looking for new people. I'm telling you, we could have a flute. We could be Jethro Tull, the worship team. Um, but the reason I say that is because we meet Christians and we ask them how long they've been attending church or when they were saved. Yet what we should really be asking them is, when did you last read the word? Or when did you last pray? And I mean really get down and pray. Because just as that instrument being in your house is not enough for you to want to lead a worship team, so is your faith if you're not reading and praying. So we either believe and we apply, or we're just coasting through our faith. And Peter does not want a church that is coasting. He sees the pressure that is coming he knows how easy it is to listen to the persuasive words of a false teacher. And so he wants us to be vigilant and prepared. So what else does Peter say that we can protect ourselves, our community? Well, it's kind of interesting because while Peter likely has a very, you know, a few very specific false teachings in mind, you know, with situations he's dealing with, he doesn't actually spend any of his time talking about them or disputing them. What he does is he focuses in like a laser on the traits of false teachers. 
And this really sets us up well because 2,000 years in the future, the false doctrines may have changed. I don't think any of us are debating whether Artemis is the mother of Jesus or Zeus was his father. But the traits of false teachers do not change. False teachers are always driven by their greed. They indulge the flesh and they despise authority. So we now know our weapons. We can identify false teachers. So Peter's going to tell us to go forth and smite in the name of Jesus. We're going to set targets. We're going to attack them with everything we've got. Well, actually not so much. So we're going to read here in verses 4 to 14. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, held for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example of what is coming for the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the perverted conduct of unscrupulous people, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while he lived among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from a trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt passion and despise authority. Reckless, self-centered, they speak abusively of angelic majesties without trembling, Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a demeaning judgment against them before the Lord, but these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, using abusive speech where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime, they are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having hearts trained in greed, accursed children. That's a lot to take in. <laughs> so, back to our question. Are we to go after and attack these false creatures? Well, yes. Ish. In terms of our community, we need to be very diligent and call out anything which does not fit with the biblical picture. But Peter has a caution here. There will always be false teachers, and nothing we do is ever going to eliminate them. However, if in our zealousness we leave the narrow path, get too focused on the enemy, and forget our own faith, who are we trusting in? Peter's encouragement here is that we need to trust that the Lord is bringing justice. And it does not matter what time frame, that is his perfect wisdom, all will face the Father. So look at these examples. One, the angels. God dealt with that. Noah, he didn't fix anything. He was just faithful, and then God acted. Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, Lot did nothing but leave. God was the judge. Peter has two major points he's making here. The first is, trust the Lord to be in control and that he will judge the wicked. He has proved time and time again that ultimately all things will come before him. And as it says, God knows how to rescue the godly from a trial. 
The second thing is, Peter points out three timeless false teachings that we need to be aware of. God judged the angels who sinned, which tells us that no one is too high to be judged. Religious perfection, long prayer times will not save you if your heart is not humble before God. God also judged the ancient world before the flood happened. So God does not grade on a curve. It is not about how bad your neighbors are or that you don't do what others do. God is judging you on your own and you will only be held to his scripture. The third one is that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. So even the prosperous will be judged. These were the wealthiest cities in the area, but their wealth did not save them. Your donations cannot save you. Only your heart being set on God will save you. So therefore, we have no reason to think that false teachers can in any way escape God's judgment. Now, after these verses, Peter then points out in pretty specific terms why we, do, we need to be careful when we attack false teachers. Because even in the best of intentions, it is so easy for us to cross the line and use abusive speech where they have no knowledge and will in the destruction of those creatures, they will also be destroyed. Peter's pointing out that the angels themselves do not speak evil or exaggerations of their fallen brethren. They simply rebuke them in the name of the Lord instead. And we need to be careful that while we have the full authority of Jesus to come against evil, we have to do it exactly as Jesus himself would have done it. And that means with all those seven traits from chapter one, we have to do it in goodness, knowledge, self-control, godliness, endurance, family affection, and love. Because it's only in Jesus that we have that authority. And so we're best to leave accusations to him alone. If we wield the name of Jesus in anger and vengeance, to whom is going the glory? You've crossed into false teaching yourself. And if you want to know with what authority Peter says this, we can look at the story in John chapter 18, verses 10 and 11, where Peter in his zeal to protect Jesus cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Great intentions. I'm going to protect Jesus, right? But does anyone here want to argue that Jesus wants us to attack people with swords? Maybe with my definition of sword. But <laughs> even if they, but even if we're about to be arrested, are we supposed to attack them? And Peter knows this line. You know, he, he's the one that smites the high priest servant and Jesus calls him back. Peter's also the guy that Jesus first commends for hearing the Holy Spirit, right? And then six short verses later, he is told what? Get behind me, Satan. Like, <laughs> dang. <laughs> but why? And Jesus explains in the next verse that gets often missed in the end of that. Peter had become a stumbling block in front of Jesus, and he had put his mind to man's purpose and not God's. You know, we want to go before the Father and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Not, yeah, you were a little bit of a stumbling block in front of me, but I managed to get over you. Like, you know. So if this sounds like a really fine line to walk, 
There's a reason our faith is called the narrow path. But it's not impossible. And to illustrate that, I want to show you a quick image I received this week during our, our morning prayer about this topic. And I know you guys are all going to be amazed by my artwork, so just calm yourselves, okay? <laughs> so our faith is a balancing act. It's a narrow balance beam. But at least it's well lit. So, you know, I thought about inserting a joke about the sun here. You know, that's a classic one. But, but really, truly, in the vision, there was the Word and the Holy Spirit. And through those, we can see the narrow path clearly amidst the darkness. So it's narrow, but we have no doubt of which way we need to go. But here's the thing. Balancing beams are tricky. They might be easy for a bit, but they become harder as we get tired and try to do things on our own strength. And that is why you need the people sitting next to you, because they are also walking their beam, but it is much easier if you help each other along and support each other when you wobble. And as an added bonus, Jesus is also there, the right there the whole time. So... I know Steph's really worried at home right now that I'm going to take over her business, but I promise you I'm not. Um, but this small image the Lord gave me, it, it really highlighted what I believe is one of the largest false teachings of our time. And that is that we can do this narrow path alone. That our faith is ours personally, and we don't need a community, and we don't need people of faith to encourage us, to hold us accountable, to live life with, or that even if we do attend... We don't have to talk about our problems. In chapter one, we read that list of traits that Peter exhorted all of faith to practice and grow in. Goodness, knowledge, self-control, godliness, endurance, family, affection, and love. And those are all really hard to do by yourself. This world preaches self-help, self-dependence, and self-care. But does anyone think that it's working? We have received so much feedback on the Summer Testimony Series, how encouraged everyone was by the bravery of those that stood up here, admitted the problems they were having, and how God moved to bring them solutions, love, and peace. Yet none of those testimonies said, well, I hid my problems, I prayed alone, and it just got solved. Yes, God can move in that place, and he will, but the real movement comes when we ask others to pray for us. And this is why the Bible tells us we are not to hide our flaws, our sins, and our struggles. Spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical. Those are all in the domain of the Lord. And we can read of stories of Jesus working in every single one of those. And since we know that he gave healing in every single one of those areas, that means we are to ask for it. So, you know, I, when I look out at this church body, I think, you know, if any of us got major cancer, probably all of us would come forth for prayer. You'd probably mention it to your cell group, and you would probably let the whole church rally around you. And I think that most of you would come forth for prayer if you had lost your job and you were in financial distress. But I think there's a few of you that come up for prayer when you feel dry 
or you're willing to admit that you have fallen off the balance beam and need help back up. And I think there are only a very few of you that come forward to admit when we are depressed or we have anxiety. And why are mental illnesses more hidden than the physical ones? Is it because we cannot see them? And this is the false teaching that we have to be perfect, that we will be judged, and that it is better to suffer than be embarrassed. Now, I'm not saying you have to blurt your issues from the stage, but please, please, please make sure that you have a few people that you are praying with and that are lifting you up in detail. Do you know what the advice they give cancer patients that are about to start treatment? They tell them to get a team to surround you and encourage you. Rally your family and friends. Why? Because even without the prayer component, the secular world sees the results and it knows the power of people encouraging you when you are down, lending you strength when you are weak. In contrast, do you know what most mental health patients do? Nothing. Because they think if it's in their head, they can fix it. They hide it, and they fake the joy and plaster a smile on their face for the world to see. But God sees through that. And I pray that we have a church community that is trusted enough that you will let them, even if it's just a few people, see the pain and suffering that you are in, and you will let them come and pray and surround you. Now, one of the problems that Peter mentioned with false teachers was that their behavior would harm the reputation of our faith. And we don't have to look very far to find all sorts of scandals by church leaders. And they typically fall into three categories. Those same three categories that Peter mentioned. Greed, sins of the flesh, and abuse of authority. And unfortunately, we had a day of remembrance on Friday to remember the abuse and the pain that this country brought upon our First Nations. But in residential schools that were mostly operated by various church groups. Think how much damage the residential schools have done to the reputation of the church. And how much abuse was spread by, men's quote, by men quoting the Bible not to support God's culture, but to support their own ethnic culture. It's exactly what we read in verse 2. And because of them, the way the truth will be maligned. Is the church seen in good light these days? Depends on probably the circle. But what we do know is what was done in the shadows must come into the light. The church, our faith, is not about secrets. We do not hide knowledge from man, but we seek to share it. We do not have secret ceremonies, but seek to show all the why we do what we do. And the answer is Jesus. Secrets are death to faith. And so just like my call to each of you personally to not hide your sins, your issues, and your sufferings, but to seek help and prayer, so must the church open the closets and let the light come in. For whether it's the residential schools or the sexual abuse cases at so many major churches, we should have done better. We should have been armed and ready. And we should have been diligent and discerning as Peter pleaded us to be. We know how to identify false teachers. 
we know that their conduct will not represent the example set forth by our Lord and that their greed, lust, and self-will will set them apart. We need to know our biblical sword like we know our cell phones. Knowing each icon and where it is, we all can on, you know, involuntarily know how many swipes it is to get to Facebook or Instagram, right? And on autopilot, we need to be able to bring up the verses to mind to defend our faith and ensure the whole truth of who Jesus is, is spoken. And that's what matters most. If we want to be a church in our community, then we need to know our faith. And the best answer for the falsehoods, the past mistakes, and the pain that the church has caused is to show the real thing and to show the real Jesus. And these are the exact situations that Peter is writing to us about and why he is pointing us to Jesus. Because it is only through Jesus, the whole of Jesus, that we can impact our community. Lord, we just thank you this morning for the words that you have spoken through Peter to us, Lord. We just thank you that your word is, is timeless, Lord, and things that were wrote, wrote down thousands of years before still have such impact on us today. And Lord, that's because your spirit moves through it. And so, Lord, we just ask that as a community, you would show us how to come before you, Lord, and come before you in humility, Lord. And then as we step forth in that humility, Lord, that you would show us how to go forth and show your son for who he truly is, Lord. Not as the, the partial Jesus that, that some people think they know, Lord. Not as the judgmental Old Testament God that people think they know, Lord. But who he is, our, our personal savior, the one who died for us, Lord, the one that we remember this morning because of what he did on the cross. And Lord, the reason he did that is not just for me or just for one other person, Lord. It was for all mankind. It was for everyone. And Lord, you seek to have that personal relationship. And so, Lord, we, we see our, our broken world. Lord, we see even the flaws within the church, your church, the bride that is supposed to be beautiful, Lord and where we have marred it. And Lord, we seek to do better. And so Lord, we just take the words of Peter this morning, Lord, just words that you gave us to arm ourselves, to be vigilant, Lord, to, to teach the whole truth. We, we don't have to exaggerate who Jesus is, Lord. We don't have to make anything up because who he is is already astounding and so far beyond anything we can imagine. And so, Lord, we just seek to go forth in truth into our community. Lord, we, we represent your truth when we're failing. We represent your truth in our suffering. But, Lord, we just seek to show the world that, no, we don't come here because we're perfect or we think we're perfect or we're better than anybody else. Lord, we come here because we know we're broken. We come here because we're hurting and we need you. And so, Lord, just for those that are feeling alone, I just pray this morning that, you would show them that they're not alone, Lord. And I just pray that you would show them people in this church that can lift them up, Lord, that you would just show them how to just engage that community aspect of prayer that you encourage us so many times in your Bible to go to, Lord. And Lord, just that, yeah, just as we go forth this week, Lord, just that you would just 
just strengthened through our cell groups, through the prayer ministries, Lord. Even just people from other churches, Lord. Just, Lord, we just seek to have people that would encourage us and uphold us when we feel weak. And so we pray this in your name. Amen. Alex brought in an encouraging word for us. It's a word of knowing who God is for you. It's a word where it encourages you to know the word of God for it is your weapon to defend but also to go against culture. There are going to be so many things that are going to be spoken in our culture today. There there are so many things that, that bombards us, especially with social media today. It comes and it invades our minds and although sometimes we don't see that as false teaching does it counter what the Bible teaches us does it go against what the Bible teaches us to be in community that's a big thing that Alex brought out is that we need to be in community and so many things that we we hear from social media is that we can fix things on our own that we need to get our lives together, that our lives need to be perfect on our own and that nobody else can see our secrets. That's what Instagram is, right? It's the perfect life that you live. It's a life that you live so that others could envy what you have. But nobody knows what's behind all of that. And the Bible is contrary to that because the Bible and Jesus wants to know what's behind that. And the church community is there to stand in the behind to help you deal with all of those things that you're actually struggling with. That we don't need to deal with anxiety and depression on our own, that anxiety and depression can be conquered because of what Jesus has for you and because of what this church has for you. That we could hold each other up, that there is light in the darkness. The Bible says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light for my path. So when you're in darkness, that's what the word is there for. The word is there to light up that path that you cannot navigate through right now. But guess what? There's also brothers and sisters that's going to hold your hand and say, let me walk this with you. Let me help you get through this darkness. Let me help you get through this fogginess. Let me help you. And that's what the church is for. That's what Five Stones needs to be more about. We need to be able to reach out to others. But I also want the church, if you see somebody that's going through something, reach out to them and say, how can I help? How can I help you right now? I know that this is not your normal. You're not sitting in joy right now. So how can I help hold your hand to walk out the joy that is set before you? That is in Jesus Christ. There are going to be so many people that are going to teach you and tell you so many things. And you have to weed through all of those things. There are going to be people, even within church or Christian circles. I I know some of you guys have circles outside of this church that are also in your community. And they're going to speak things to you. But make sure that everything that is spoken is brought back to the church and is weighed by the church and is supported by the church and supported by the word of God. 
just as the words that we read today, that abuse without knowledge. Because people will use the word of God to abuse you. And that's abuse without knowledge. And those things need to be, that need to be brought into the community and say, hey, someone said this to me. Do you think this is true? If those words are said to you and it doesn't bring love and compassion, it doesn't make your heart want to transform and it only condemns that it's not from Jesus. Because any word that's brought before you needs to bring transformation and it needs to bring out love. It has to. All the time, 100% of the time, even it is, if it is a word of correction, that there has to be love behind it. And so if that word doesn't have that, it's not for you. Weigh it in front of the church. Weigh it in front of the leaders of the church. Weigh it in front of your peers. Is this word for me? But church, we need to do this together. But we also need to do this together so that the world can see that there is a better way. Right? That there is a better way. So as we continue into 2 Peter, we're going to continue this next week. I just feel like I need to preach that sermon right now. (laughs) But I'm not going to do that. But church, I want us to be the biggest encouragers for each other. Can we do that? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the word that was brought in and that your spirit just comes and, and encourages us to know that we could stand together as a church against any false teachings, that we could stand against uh, any, any false attitudes that come from the world, Lord, that we could sit here knowing that in our community, in your church, that we have that family to, to, to lean on. That we have your word to lean on. That we have Jesus to look forward to. And that Jesus is our goal. Jesus is our prize. So Lord, we thank you for what you've taught us today. And Lord, may we continue to encourage each other in our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>